And by the way, I just want to thank you on behalf of all of humanity for reading the great narrative. So the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of us really didn't have to. Um, Klaus Schwab is someone whose name, I think, even if you're not familiar with or haven't been familiar with, um, over the next few weeks and months and possibly even years, hopefully not years, because hopefully he's not in our lives for that for that long. But you're going to start hearing that name more and more often. I believe, as the layers of the onion kind of get peeled back. I'm wondering if you can give us, I mean, I, I know you're not a biographer of his, but if you can just you know, share with the folks who are maybe not familiar with who Klaus Schwab is, a little bit of, about why this guy figures so prominently in our lives without us not even knowing it at this point, basically. Well, if people are interested, I would suggest they go to uh, corporatereport.com slash great reset, which I believe is the link off the top of my head. I did a, a podcast in 2021 um, that was a thoroughgoing exploration of the world economic forum. Perhaps it's corporatereport.com slash WEF. At any rate, <laughs> just search World Economic Forum to my site and you'll see I did a, a deep dive into the World Economic Forum, how it started and what it's about. Um, but long story short, yes, Klaus Schwab is a very interesting character with a number of different degrees, some of them honorary, some of them apparently earned, who uh, rose up seemingly out of nowhere in the early 1970s as someone who started something called the European Management Forum, I believe it was uh, called when it was first founded, which was his vision for bringing ideas for a new form of capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, as he called it, um, to the forefront of the international conversation. And that involved this idea of transitioning over to a society in which we don't think of corporations as only being beholden to their shareholders, people who actually hold stock in the company. No, no, no. A company has a larger footprint and people who are living in the area that's affected by the company or living on the place where the resources are being harvested or what have you, they all have a stake in the company. So his vision, at least at first, seemed to involve, well, we should expand this idea of capitalism and wow, I can be the one that can steward over this process of this transition. And that is essentially the founding ethos of the World Economic Forum. Um, interestingly, at the very, I believe the first or second ever uh, Davos conference that was held, um, it was not only attended by luminaries like Henry Kissinger, who had been um, Schwab's one of Schwab's teachers and mentors, um, which might explain some of his connections to the the broader um, world of power and influence, but um, was also attended by um, Aurelio Pache, who was one of the co-founders of the Club of Rome, which was an interesting organization that was spouting off about the limits to growth and the need to curtail the human population and all of the scaremongering that was going on at that time in the 1970s. Meanwhile, we're heading off the demographic cliff towards demographic winter and a shrinking human population. But there are still people who don't see that coming. Um, at any rate, uh, so that was sort of the, the founding of this. And the World Economic Forum is a family affair. It is encoded in the actual founding documents of the World Economic Forum that Schwab or one of his heirs will always have a seat at the table as the head of the, uh, the forum. So it is a Schwab family affair that has somehow managed to garner this reputation of being the go-to event every year in Davos, but more broadly, it's starting to work on issues like the fourth industrial revolution and the great reset, and now the great narrative for how we can transition over to this new global world order that they're constructing behind the scenes. Who's doing this? Certainly not. No one. I didn't have any say in this, but apparently this is going to steward over the rest of our lives. So it's a, an important organization to wrap your mind around right now. 
That's that's actually a great point. Who who voted for Klaus Schwab and who voted for the WEF to kind of usher in this this agenda? And yet, and yet, of course, as we've all seen in recent weeks with that clip that's now floating around that uh, I believe was recorded a couple of years ago, but Schwab openly bragging about how he's penetrated cabinets around the world, including in Canada with Justin Trudeau and so many of his cabinet members being World Economic Forum affiliates, including the deputy prime minister who was the one who announced the uh, this the freezing of bank accounts and other things. Christia Freeland, who was is literally World Economic Forum board of trustee uh, on the board of trustees. So there you go. So so Schwab, you know what 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 gets me about this crowd is that they are not very secretive, they're not very coy, they're not very subtle. If you're paying attention, they tell you exactly what they're going to do and almost when they're going to do it. I mean, COVID was kind of laid out in that Rockefeller Foundation document that that came out 10 years ago or eight years ago, I believe it was, where they actually laid out how they were going to use the mainstream media and how they were going to use social media. It's all there in black and white. And so Schwab writes this book called The Great Narrative. And in it, he describes how they're basically going to sell this notion of a one-world government. He doesn't call it, or maybe he does call it a one-world government, actually. <laughs> he'll, he'll tell us. Well, I think it's important to note that quite contrary to the caricature of conspiracy theorizing that gets bandied around in the establishment media, the reality is exactly that, that this is not some sort of secretive agenda that you have to have secret access to know about. No, it generally is something that is openly written and talked about. And I think the World Economic Forum is a prime example of that with the publication of books that you can read for yourself if you plug your nose and so choose, um, in which they say it in black and white. Um, Schwab goes around saying that we're going to merge our physical and biological and digital identities. And um, within the coming decade, we're going to have brain chips and all of these crazy things. It's not me saying this stuff. It's Klaus Schwab. That should be concerning to people um, because this is someone with the type of uh, resources and connections to make these types of agenda happen. So it is important to understand that and that this is not some secretive thing that you have to you know, scry the tea leaves to understand. In fact, I did a uh, edition of my questions for Corbett podcast series uh, last year, I believe, uh, about how does a global conspiracy work, where I went through example after example after example of out in the open, black and white, in published books and documents that you can go read for yourself. There, there it isn't so much a hidden conspiracy as an open conspiracy, which was what H.G. Uh, Wells specifically wrote about in, I believe, the 1920s or 1930s, where he published his book on the open conspiracy, talking about the need for an open conspiracy, a brotherhood of scientific elites to come together and steward over a world government. It seems to be a, 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 a presiding fixation of this type of person who wants to essentially rule the world. And it's the same, it's the same founding ethos and, and drive that has existed throughout human history. It's just that we've been conditioned to believe that that's crazy. No one in our day and age would do something that every single tyrant throughout history has lusted after. That's just silly. Well, of course it isn't. And once you put two brain cells together to start working on this, you can quite easily uncover the supposedly secret agenda. And in fact, this gentleman writes a book about it. And so he, he, goes, he goes into detail about how and why we need to bring about this great narrative. First of all, what, what exactly is the great narrative? 
So uh, this was framed uh, last November, or at least introduced to the world last November at a conference in Dubai, where Klaus Schwab was announcing this idea of we need a great narrative to present the way forward for humanity, because we're at this crisis point, this inflection point, things could go wrong, but they could go right if we just imagine a better world. And so that was basically the basis for this, this book that he put together with his uh, co-author Thierry Mallory. Um, they put this book together off on the basis of conversations that they had with 30, sorry, 50 um, global opinion makers, which is what they called them in the book. Um, people whose, some of whose names you would perhaps be familiar with, um, but supposed luminaries and, and great thinkers about how to essentially, uh, what it boils down to, and as I point out in my recent podcast, what it boils down to is the crisis, the real crisis. I mean, yeah, there's, COVID and, and climate change and all of these crises. But the real root of the problem is we don't have a coordinated international framework for enacting an agenda across nation state boundaries. We still have each nation state scrambling to deal with these emergencies in their own haphazard way. But somehow or other, it tends to look almost identical in country after country all around the world. I don't know how that happens. Um, but the, the the narrative, of course, is, oh, just so many different countries doing their own thing. We need to coordinate this. So we need to get the public on board with this idea of a broader global governmental structure. How can you do that? Because people have been conditioned all their lives to believe in their nation state and believe in these boxes that are around them. No, we have to help them to imagine a world of cooperation. And so that's sort of the basis, the driving ethos of this, which is, again, in service of the greater agenda of some sort of global governmental structure. Well, you you raise one of the things that you concentrate on in your in that episode, and I'm going to put a link to it um, in the show notes, because I hope everybody clicks through and watches that episode. You do a great job of laying out exactly the agenda that's laid out in this book. And they speak about the importance of um, narratives and how compelling narratives have the potential to control action, to control life, as it were. This is such an important topic that I think the average person probably has not spent a lot of time thinking about. But in the end, I think everything political boils down to narrative. And this is why I take a look at something like, say, the Freedom Convoy that just took place in Canada. What that is, essentially, is a narrative. And it depends on which narrative you're subscribing to. Either this was some sort of dangerous insurrection of these radical extremists, or it was some sort of freedom movement, or maybe it was a controlled opposition movement that was designed to get the Emergencies Act enacted so that these new powers could be unleashed, or uh, whatever way you're thinking about it, it is in some sort of narrative framework. And the thing that I think people fail to understand is that the people who can control the broader societal conversation, the narrative, the story that we tell each other about what is happening in the world, the people who can set that by, say, controlling the media outlets that uh, that are 90% of the information that most people get on a daily basis, that is the real governing power of society. And you don't have to take my word for it. You could go back, say, to the 1920s, the literal book, Propaganda, written by Edward Bernays, where he starts out by saying that the real governing uh, uh, power in society are those people who uh, control the thoughts and habits and opinions of everyday people. That is it. That is who really controls the world. And that's why I think so much money, time, effort, energy, resources are invested in controlling 
um, media and uh, the the narrative broadly. Um, and that's why I think over the past couple of decades, there has been such a flourishing of alternative ideas. There, there is something that has taken place over the past couple of decades, shifting away from the almost complete consolidation of narrative control in the hands of those legacy media corporations into this online space where you suddenly had people sitting in their living room in Japan who were reaching millions of people um, sometimes. That, that's, that's genuine that's a genuine game changer. And that's why we see this incredible crackdown on uh, information online that's coming right now and in the name of preventing disinformation. Of course, I think people can see quite well, people who are looking for it can see quite obviously that this isn't about um, saving people's health or something along those lines. This is about controlling the narrative so that things can be put in place. And so that anyone who protests can be seen as a extremist insurrectionist. And you you actually wrote an essay last year about the importance of of storytelling. So this is something you've been working on and thinking about for a while. Actually, for many years. In fact, I my degree was in English literature. I went to Trinity College Dublin for a master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature. So if there's anything that I'm qualified, actually paper qualified to speak about, it is narrative and storytelling and how those things impact, impact our lives. And I've thought deeply about this for many, many decades and it's so from my perspective, it's just, yes, of course, this is the way it is. But I, I realize a lot of people haven't seen the world through that lens and don't understand the power of setting a narrative, telling a story in order to get people to understand events in one way or another. Because again, then no matter what happens, if you have a certain narrative perspective on it, it will always look a certain way. So one thing that is important to understand is that when you're your solution, your narrative, the thing that is the real driving purpose of what you do is global government. And we need to consolidate more control in the hands of fewer people. And we need this overpowering structure for the entire world. Then every and any crisis, anything that happens, the answer to it is going to be more global government. We need to put more power in the hands of, of fewer people. That will be the answer to this. And there's no way to there's no way to disprove that because it isn't it isn't something that's a, a scientific formulation or something. It's a narrative. It's a story that's being told. So everything that goes wrong is going wrong because there isn't enough power in the hands of these these few elitists. And that's that's why we have to put out an, a different narrative. We have to make people understand. No, anything that happens, every crisis, they're going to go and try to push that button and try to take more power for themselves. But that is. The problem that is what is causing all of these crises. We have to go in the opposite direction until people start to understand what that even looks like, what that means, the narrative framework for that. They won't be able to actually make concrete changes in their lives to make that help happen. That is such an important point. I think anybody listening to what you just said will kind of the light will start to go on there a little bit about why there's such sticklers for control and and censorship. I mean, I I always say that that people who advocate for freedom um, in terms of speech, in terms of just about everything, um, they don't do such a good job of understanding that politics is downstream from culture. Whereas people like Klaus Schwab understand that, understand the power of that all too well. And you speak about how this narrative shaping is done through movies. It's not just through the mainstream media or social media. It's done through art as well. 
That's right. In fact, I had a series called Film Literature in the New World Order, where I looked at movies and books and other such things and examined them from that perspective. What is this? What sort of story is being told here? And what is it? What what effect can it have on the reader? And those sorts of things. I actually abandoned that series because the feedback I was getting started to make me realize that um, by putting out a half hour or an hour podcast on a book, for example, it was actually dissuading people from reading the book because, oh, I listen to the podcast, I get the idea, uh, which was kind of the exact opposite intention. So until I can figure out a way to actually motivate people to read the things that I'm talking about. I'm not sure I'm going to do that, but it is an important thing. And I I, I know there are other people in the independent media space who, who do that type of thing. I wouldn't dismiss that as being just sort of tangential or secondary. No, that really is a heart of the cultural war that is taking place that, as you say, precedes the political war. Politics is downstream of culture. Culture is downstream of technology, which is why they're trying to control the, the big tech platforms. And technology is downstream of finance. So I think there's a certain pyramid of uh, power that's, that goes on there. But at any rate, culture is primary to politics. And and you, speaking of technology, you go over how in the book they lay out um, this this coming wave of biological kind of some people call it transhumanism but this kind of marriage between biology and technology so that's that's very much on their agenda as well absolutely and people who don't understand that will probably be perplexed by the events that are taking place already but the ones that are to come for sure um and since i've been situated to have seen this coming and i've been talking about transhumanism since i believe 2008 i think i made my first podcast about the transhuman movement and where it's going i've seen it crystal clear and the way that it's developing specifically in the covid and now the post covid era um i point for example to i believe it was was it a forbes or I believe it was a Forbes article from a couple of years ago, looking forward to the end of humanity. No, I believe it was Wall Street Journal, where they were talking about, you know, what is our conception of what human is and how is it going to change? And now that we can manipulate people's genetics and start talking about technological upgrades and other such things, I I know I I have to say this every time. Uh, Maybe I should stop saying this at some point. It sounds like science fiction until you actually look at what is actually happening right now and what they are bringing online for the very near future. And uh, you start to realize that the question of what it means to be human and how is that going to change in the coming decades is not a theoretical question. It is not pie in the sky. There are real questions to be asked and answered here. And unfortunately, a lot of the public doesn't even know those questions are being raised. They speak openly about their ability to hack human DNA. And and of course, I I think I heard a speech. I'm not sure where it was, um, whether it was at Davos or, or some other event. But the speaker was saying, once you hack something, you can reverse engineer it. And he was speaking specifically about the context of human genes and human DNA, which basically means life. Yes. And these, again, these are mainstream speakers and thinkers who are being hosted at World Economic Forum and other places like that, like Yuval Noah Hariri, who um, talked about humans being hackable animals. Um, You have, I believe it's James Giordano going around talking about advising NATO and uh, the U.S. military and others about um, how we're going to be hacking brains in the future and how that will work as a military operation. 
Um, you start to get into, uh, I believe it's Moderna, even in their own promotional material for their mRNA vaccines, which had never, of course, been approved for anything before the uh, COVID crisis. Uh, in their promotional material years ago, we're talking about the software of life and how they were going to engineer a new operating system for the human platform and, and things like this that, again, it just sounds it sounds so out to lunch that I get it. If I was saying this, yeah, well, who's this guy? He's a weirdo. No, it's not me. It's the the corporations and, and people in power who are bringing this agenda about who are saying it. You know, quoting a copy like that from Moderna's literature actually got me banned from YouTube, interestingly enough. I was just quoting. <laughs> I wasn't saying it, just like you said. It's not yeah. me saying it. I, I was quoting Moderna's own literature, and apparently they don't they don't like anybody pointing it out. And it goes to show um, what this agenda is really about. You know, I, um, as I was watching your video, I, this, the one overriding thought that I had was the founding fathers in the United States, when they came to compose the Bill of Rights, they didn't get together in a room and say, well, we have to figure out how we're going to sell that. We have to figure out a great narrative on how we're going to sell people on the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion or the freedom of pr the press. I mean, Muhammad Gandhi, when he was, you know, advocating for India's freedom from British colonialism in the mid 20th century, he didn't get together with his supporters and say, we have to come up with a great narrative. It seems to me that you're coming up with something called a great narrative. If you're trying to sell a population, a bill of goods, if you're trying to be deceptive, your thoughts on that? I get where you're coming from. I would, I would dispute that because, um, well, I mean, why listen to a Canadian about American uh, history? But I would say the Bill of Rights in and of itself is an admission that the Constitution was a mistake and a problem. And hey, we've created something that we're going to try to chain down. But don't worry, it will never get out of these chains, guys. Oh, wait, it did. Um, but well, I, I meant in the broader context of like. Right. And so I would say the founding, the real founding document, the Declaration of Independence, one of the only political documents in history I could really get behind, Better example, um, yeah. which in and of itself sets a narrative right away. Way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, born with certain inalienable rights. This is this is a narrative that is being set, and it is it's laying out its framework and its terms. We are we have certain inalienable rights. You know, do we? How? Why? You know, whatever. It's it's God given. However, you want to frame that. That's the narrative, and we're going to set it out for you. So I don't think I don't think there's a way out of narrative framing. Um, just because someone is presenting you with a narrative, it doesn't mean they're trying to deceive you. It's just that there is no way to experience the world without narrative. I don't know what that would look like, other than some sort of Zen moment of meditation. I'm one with the universe, and everything is just happening. But that's not really a way of living life in the real world. Well, so I I was doing this research on the great narrative, and the one thing that kind of gave me a little bit of hope is that I was on the, uh, I believe it was the Amazon page, and I was reading through some of the reviews of this book by Klaus Schwab, and there was 100 reviews, and it got two stars. And I, I want to quote you a couple of the reviews here. So one of them says, why can't Santa Klaus, this person called him that, get Swiss citizenship, even though he's lived there for 60 years? Maybe they don't want to legitimize this weird World Economic Forum cult leader. Another one. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is not a scare tactic. This is what they are trying to put into gear at high speed. Wake up and educate yourself because it will be on your doorstep faster than you can imagine. The last one here. I did not like the book. The author comes across as a true psychopath, someone with views of human life that are completely antithetical to freedom and liberty. That's kind of encouraging, is it not? 
It is. And this is, in fact, one of the things that they note in the book, the lack of the declining trust in institutional authority is by them, of course, seen as a problem. How do we get trust back in our institutions so that people will be led again? Um, th this shows that people are not are certainly questioning this agenda. Unfortunately, there are ways to, if not derail, at least sort of steer people into unproductive um, alleys when it comes to being dissent. Dissent against what? What is it that you want to bring about? If you, people can be led into um, uh, whatever it is. In fact, if you go watch uh, my podcast on A Brief History of Hopium, you will see how easy it is to mislead people who would be the people who would be most against a certain agenda to lead them straight into thinking, don't worry, you know, sit back, trust the plan, get your popcorn, everything's going to turn all right, out all right, just don't do anything. It, it's unfortunately easy to influence people who are seeing through some tricks, but not others. And that's what we have to worry about. And so it's a it's constant vigilance. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, as they say, and that's as true now as it ever was. Well, but before we let you go here, if you could, if you could wave a magic wand, if you were king for a day, and you can set into place one or two policies that would kind of at least begin to reverse this trend. What would you do? What would be a, what would be a call to action? I am. I'm, I don't want to um, cop out of this answer. It is not a cop out. I truly would not set policies for the globe and uh, even some sort of general principle or something along those lines. If I really had some sort of magical, mystical power and ability, it would be the ability to tell the narrative that gets through to the mass, vast majority of people on the planet why spontaneous order is a thing that exists and is more important than order that is set from a top-down set of policies and decisions. If I could get that understanding through to the average Joe Sixpack and Jane Soccer Mom, mission accomplished, because uh, letting people govern themselves to be uh, what they are going to be, to express themselves in the way that they will, and to suffer the consequences of their actions, to reap the benefits and suffer the consequences of those actions. It does not mean there would not be any uh, uh, law or, or, or things to govern society. It just means there would be no people sitting there governing with principles. Uh, you must do this. You must not do that. No, 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 no. It, th there is something called spontaneous order that arises. If I could get that idea through to people, I wouldn't have to do anything else. Bottom up instead of top down is what I think you're, you're saying. In a nutshell. <laughs> Go to corporatereport.com slash order for a more articulate and detailed response. <laughs> well, to that end, James, please tell people where they can find you because I just recently discovered you. And, um, you know, yeah, I think you're a treasure. I think everybody needs to kind of check you out because you lay things out in a way that people can understand and you explain why people need to be paying attention to things when maybe they haven't been paying attention to, to, to those things in the past. Well, for many, many, many years, most people found me through YouTube, but obviously that is not an option anymore. I was removed from YouTube last year. Um, no, I, I'm not shedding any tears about that, but uh, it was it's a badge the, of honor. The, it was, yeah, at this point, if you're not censored off YouTube, you're not doing it right. But um, I had something like 90 million views and 500 plus thousand subscribers. Well, oh, well, uh, now that enemy information platform is not available to me. So I make advantage of others. Uh, the best way to get my work is CorbettReport.com. Um, that's that's where you can find my work. But I'm also posting to archive.org, minds.com, odyssey, bitshoot, um, uh, and 
Uh, maybe that's it. Oh, I, I have a sub stack that I've started because they say that they're on board. They're not going to censor and they're not going to cave to censorship demands. Well, we'll see. <laughs> At any rate, I'm on Substack for the moment. Um, I'll try uh, other platforms, but I, I've got my hands full with that. So just go to corporatereport.com if you want to follow my work directly. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks a lot, James, for making the time. Uh, hopefully, this is the first of many conversations. All right. Thank you for having me on. All right.